Well, let me start off with a question for you. See if you know the answer to this question. Who said this about England in 1969? It will be years, not in my time, before a woman will become prime minister. Margaret Thatcher, the first prime minister of female prime minister of England. Albert Einstein, universally regarded as one of the greatest minds to ever live, said this in 1932. There's not the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be obtainable. It would mean that the atom would have to be shattered at will. Didn't quite work out that way. We know so little of the future, don't we? Whether it be sports, politics, or the economy, even our best experts rarely can predict what lies around the corner, even just the near future. One prominent economist, Edgar Fiedler, humorously said, he who lives by the crystal ball soon learns to eat ground glass. He also said, the moment you forecast, you know you're going to be wrong. You just don't know when and in which direction. Well, the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of God, never ate ground glass. He made profound predictions of the future. And either they have come true already, or they will come true one day in the future. We've already seen, for example, how he predicted the rise of the Persian king named Cyrus called him out by name 150 years before he ever took the throne. Today we come to a prediction of the future about an individual whom he calls the servant of the Lord. Servant of the Lord. And this servant is the Messiah. Church, from beginning to end of the Old Testament, it is all about the Messiah the future hope of a deliverer who will come and bring peace to this earth and restoration for the people of God. Now, you might be wondering, why does Isaiah call him the servant? Well, there's actually several reasons that he uses that particular name. For one thing, the title servant of the Lord was actually a title of honor. You see it used with folks like Abraham and Moses and so forth. So it was an honorable title. But also, it has a really deep connection to King David, who was called the servant of God more than any other in the Old Testament. And we saw in, re in weeks past how Isaiah has already been predicting a future king from the line of David. Do you remember that from Isaiah 9? Of a king who will be God in human flesh and will reign forever. So now we read about the same person, this time called the servant. And amazingly, this great king, God in human flesh, identifies as a servant. Astounding, isn't it? So this prediction, of course, is going to come true by Jesus 700 years later. So if you can, please turn to Isaiah chapter 42 as we continue our series on this remarkable book. I hope you've been blessed by our time in Isaiah so far. We're actually heading down the home stretch with our series. So to recap where we've recently left off, if you remember, when we move into the second half of Isaiah, 
the message of Isaiah changes from one of judgment and exile to one of forgiveness and restoration for Israel. But the question looms, how is he going to restore his people? This is where God speaks of a servant who is going to accomplish this redemption. The servant who doesn't appear in the first half of Isaiah now starts appearing very prominently. You might want to make a note of this. There are four passages. People call them servant songs, where there's this in-depth discussion of the future servant. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, 50, and then 52 to 53. Next time, we're going to look at Isaiah 53. I think the most famous and most important biblical prophecy in the whole Old Testament. The depth of the predictions about Jesus in Isaiah 53 just blow the mind. But that's next time. Today, we're going to look at Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. And so there's two parts to each of these different passages. For the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on the first part, which focuses on a description of the servant. So, if you're with me, Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. We'll read it together. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. There's a lot that could be said here about this passage here with the servant. Talk about the justice that he's going to bring forth and, and, and so forth. But let me just for the sake of time, focus on two characteristics about this servant of the Lord. The first is that he is filled with the Spirit of the Lord. He's filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Did you see that there in the passage? Very important, because you see in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon people at various times and places to help accomplish tasks that God was wanting to be done. Look in the book of Judges. The Spirit came upon them to bring deliverance to the people of Israel. So, for example, Samson, it wasn't because, I don't believe, he he wasn't a bulging hulk, that he was so strong. It was because the Spirit of God came upon him that he was able to do those things. The Spirit came upon David and made him a great king. Okay, so it's the Spirit coming upon his people at various times. But notice it says the Spirit will come upon the servant, right? The servant. I said just a moment ago that this servant, he's going to come from the line of David. And here how you see the two of them come together. Isaiah 11, 1 to 2 says, There shall come forth a stump from the root of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So the spirit is going to rest upon this future king who is going to be the servant. You say, well, what about Jesus? Did this take place in his life? Remember, when Jesus went forth at his baptism, what took profit Isaiah was given to him? 
he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus sits down and says that that passage has now been fulfilled in your hearing because the Spirit was now upon Jesus. He was God in human flesh, but get this, church, in His humanity to accomplish these things, the Spirit came upon Him and He was sent forth to carry out the Messianic call that He had been given. By the way, that's a great word for us, isn't it? That just as we have been given the Holy Spirit, God wants us to be filled by the Spirit and to live and to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own strength. Amen? By what the Spirit does in our lives. So the servant is going to be filled with the Spirit. The other thing about the servant I want to point out is he's gentle. Isn't this remarkable? He's this incredible combination of might. Isn't this remarkable? He's this incredible combination of might and gentleness. He doesn't crush the weak, as you read in the passage there, of the broken reed that's just about to topple over or the candle that's just about to go out. A lot of great conquerors, when they see the weak, what do they think? Let's destroy them and steamroll them. This servant is going to come along and say, no, I'm going to reach out to the weak and I'm going to strengthen them. You say, well, what about Jesus? I think he fulfilled this this specific passage to point out how Jesus cared for those who were the outcasts, who were the broken, who were the sick, who were the, 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 the dregs of society. Jesus reached out to them to those who are about to give in, to those who are on their last leg, Jesus reached out to them. Church, I think this should move you to think about Jesus in this way. He is gentle. And when you are broken, He will never turn you away. He never makes fun of you. He never turns His back. He's always there when we come to him. In fact, I love what he says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you're coming here today, And you might look nice and comfortable in your lawn chair right now. But maybe internally, your life is in turmoil right now. And you have a lot of weight and a lot of burden circulating in your spirit. Remember that Jesus is gentle and he never turns away anyone who comes to him and lays out their burdens before him. He will give rest to your souls. Let us look first and foremost to Christ. Amen, church? He is gentle. I want you to turn now to Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to look at the second service servant passage. And here we're going to see that this servant is the redeemer of Israel and the world. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 49 and verses 1 to 6. 
Isaiah 49, 1-6, it says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me by my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So just like with Isaiah 42, there's a whole lot that we could talk about. But again, I just want to focus on two characteristics about this servant. The first is that he is going to redeem Israel. He's going to redeem Israel. Now here I need to clarify something. In some cases, when you're reading through Isaiah... The servant refers to the nation of Israel, while in other cases it refers to an individual, the Messiah. And of course there's some overlap, but as you just carefully read along, you see that there's a distinction that Isaiah is not talking about one servant named Israel, but two servants. And when he talks about the nation Israel as a whole, he talks about them in a way that shows that they are weak that they sin that they need redemption when he changes his focus to talk about the individual named israel he is faithful and he brings redemption to the rest of the nation so in other words the individual fulfills where the nation fails and so in isaiah 39 did you guys catch that distinction in verse 3, the individual is named Israel. And then in verses 5 to 6, it says that he is going to restore the nation of Israel. So he's not talking about one person. or one. He's talking about a nation and an individual. And the individual is going to bring the nation back to God. Keep that in mind. That's super important in a few moments here. So the servant is going to redeem Israel. He also is going to redeem the Gentiles. We're going to see this. We saw this in, in, in chapter 42. I didn't read the verse, but it says in verse 6, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation. So God called Israel to be a light to the world, to be a light to the Gentiles, that they would see the difference that God makes in their lives and that they would be drawn to him. Unfortunately, they failed in their task to do so. So God calls the servant, Israel, the singular, the Messiah, to be the light to the Gentiles where they fell short. It says in verse 6, the Lord says to the servant, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the Lord says, it's not enough 
for you to redeem Israel to the Messiah. I also want you to redeem the Gentiles. Amen to that. So God called him to redeem the world. You say, well, what did Jesus do when he came along? Well, it's interesting, during his earthly ministry, he did focus primarily on Israel, didn't he? But he did minister to the Gentiles on occasion, but more importantly, when he came to the end of his ministry, what does he do? He calls together all of his disciples who were all Jewish, and he tells them, you are to go and make disciples of what? All nations. That was the task. He had been given, just like Isaiah had said hundreds of years before, the, the, the marching orders that Jesus gives is to make disciples of all the world. So this is how Jesus is. He is the servant. The church saw that Jesus fulfilled all these things. He was spirit-filled. He was gentle. He brought redemption to Israel, and he brought redemption to the Gentiles. Peter in Acts 3.13 says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Jesus is the servant. But there's more. And this gets really great right now. I love talking about these things. Hope you'll track with me. If you have your bulletin, you might want to pull out the insert there. We're going to track with that in a moment here. And this is very profound because it changes how you view yourself as the church, how you view Israel, and what our calling is as a people of God. We need to be reminded of who we are as God's people. Let me, let me close with three points in light of all these things we've been seeing from Isaiah. The first is this. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. Remember we just saw Isaiah called the individual servant Israel. Did you see that? Right? So the individual Israel is going to redeem the nation Israel. Likewise, Jesus and his apostles saw it the same way. And here you might want to take out your sheet there, particularly the Gospel of Matthew really drives this point home about how Jesus is the true Israel. Number one there, it says, Israel went to Egypt to escape the famine, right? Jesus went to Egypt to escape King Herod as a baby. God brought Israel back from Egypt to Palestine. God brought Jesus back from Egypt to Palestine. Israel was called God's son in the sense that they were the heir of the world to be a light to the world and that they had a special relationship with God. Jesus is called God's eternal son, right? And what's fascinating, and in Matthew 2, it's about Jesus coming back to Palestine. He quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, which says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Hosea was originally talking about Israel, but he's applying it to Jesus because he's the fulfillment of those things. Do you see that? Number four, Israel came out of the Jordan River, right? When they came into the promised land, Jesus came out of the Jordan River at his baptism. Matthew 3 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. 
John would have prevented him saying, I need, not, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Ever wonder why Jesus was baptized when he didn't do any sins? And John was like, what's going on here, Jesus? You need to be baptizing me. But it was because he was the new Israel coming forth out of the Jordan. Number five, Jesus, or excuse me, wilderness being tested. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tested. Number six, Israel was comprised of 12 tribes. How many apostles does Jesus choose? Twelve to renew Israel. Number seven, Moses went up on a mountain and gave the essential elements of the covenant to Israel. Whoa. Number eight, Jesus, or excuse me, Israel's called a vineyard. We saw that in Isaiah chapter five. Jesus said that he is the true vine, right? We are the branches. Israel was supposed to be the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Over and over you see how Jesus is the true Israel. He was the fulfillment, whether they failed or just whether he came along and they didn't necessarily fail, but he just is greater than anything they did. And it all traces back to Isaiah, doesn't it? Where we these two servants, one of them an individual, the other one who fulfills where the nation fell. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So, Israel's the, excuse me, Jesus is the true Israel. Second, the church is the renewed Israel. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus is the true Israel. And we become part of it when we believe in him. He is the vine. We are the what? The branches. And so the renewed tiles. The church is exactly what Jesus, excuse me, Isaiah predicted long ago. Through the apostles. Remember the, the apostle Paul, when he would go throughout the Roman Empire, where did he start in his preaching? First, right? And so throughout the Roman Empire, the Jews were believing in Jesus. Also, though, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go to the Gentiles. And so the church is the renewed Israel, both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. In Galatians 6.16, Paul calls the church there, which was a mixed congregation. Isn't that fascinating? Calls them the Israel of God. James 1.1, writing to the churches that he was a part of, he writes it to, quote, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. 1 Peter 2.9 says of the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Paul, Peter, James, all of them, Jewish men, describe the church with titles used for Israel. They recognize that Jesus, the servant, restored the nation. And that it includes both Jews and Gentiles. Now some of you might be thinking, well there were some Jews, a lot of Jews, who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So how does that make sense? Well Isaiah... 
foresaw this too, didn't he? If you were paying attention, he talked about how the Messiah would face opposition. And then we're going to really see that in two weeks when we go through Isaiah 53, where the Messiah faces a tremendous amount of opposition. But church, the, the opposition that he faced does not negate the fact that he brought restoration to the people and that Jesus was successful in his task to redeem the nation of Israel. He did not fail. He was successful. Now, there is more to come. Romans 11 very clearly talks about how at the end of time that there will be a great turning to the Messiah from the nation of Israel. But just as Isaiah said, Israel was going to believe and the Gentiles would follow suit. I want to talk about that because that is so important. A lot of times there's a lot of confusion amongst Christians about the relationship between the church and Israel. Sometimes you'll, you will hear Christians say that the church has replaced Israel. That's not what we just heard, is it? The church is the fulfillment of Israel. Other times people will come along and say that the church is a parenthesis, right? That God is really just focused on Israel. The church is a parenthesis, and then God's going to pick it up again with Israel. That's not correct either, is it? It is a fulfillment of everything that Isaiah spoke about. Some of you may not agree with what I've just said. You certainly have all the right in the world to disagree with Isaiah. If you want to. But I would not want to disagree with this guy who's predicting things 700 years in advance. But I do think it greatly affects our identity. That the church is this great fulfillment of what Isaiah was predicting all along. And that Jesus saw this and understood this and the apostles. And this is not a parenthesis, but this is the fulfillment of the plan of redemption. Amen? Last point here. Like Jesus, we are servants. I just can't get over the fact that Jesus identifies himself as a servant. Yes, I know that title has honor. It connects to David and he's the future king. Absolutely, there's always a lot of depth to these things. But at rock bottom, it doesn't change the fact that the very heart of Jesus is servanthood. Amen? The king of kings is a servant. He is above all people, but he puts himself beneath all people. All people should be serving him, but he serves all people. And his whole life was just one huge act of service over and over. And he said it this way in Matthew 20, 28. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Amen. Likewise, service is not beneath us. It should be our very hearts to serve. And of course, serving God and others is challenging for us because of our pride, because of our selfishness sometimes. But church, we must be servants. And I would say even now, more so than ever, because of COVID-19, 
there's kind of a natural tendency within our hearts that when we feel threatened to kind of focus on ourselves, right? To make sure we're doing okay. And that is natural. That is natural. God has built that in us to take care of ourselves. But it can lead to an overly fixated mind on thinking about ourselves rather than thinking about others. And the call to servanthood has never changed. It never will change. God calls His people to serve whether it's thick or thin. And I would say, if anything, that call has only intensified. The world needs to see the church serving more so than ever. You may not be able to serve in the same ways that you were serving beforehand. But maybe now you can make more phone calls, send more emails, write more notes, spend more time praying, giving financially, whatever it might be. All of us should be asking God, Lord, this is a critical hour in our day and age. How can you use me as a servant today? It is a privilege. And one other thing about, just to encourage you, with this thought. Service is what leads to greatness in God's eyes. Excuse me, I keep saying Isaiah. Not Isaiah this time. Matthew 23, 11. Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. In Mark 9, 35, he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This goes contrary to the world, but we have to recalibrate our thinking, don't we? Knowledge and prestige and power is not what is great in the eyes of God. It is a servant heart. And and church, indeed, that's the only praise that will matter in eternity. We want to hear what Jesus is going to say to his faithful servants on that day when we stand before him and he says these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Service leads to greatness in the eyes of God. At the end of the day, church, that's what it all boils down to. The end of our lives to say, I have been a servant to God, to his people, and to the world. Are you with me in wanting to say that is where I want to be at? Amen. One last thing. The greatest example of Jesus, his whole life was one of service, but the greatest example of his servanthood was his mission of redemption. You know, prior to his incarnation, Jesus was fully God in all the grandeur and glory that he rightly had and possessed. But to become fully human, he had to lay aside some of that glory, right? Not his deity. He was still God, but some of that glory he laid aside because he couldn't be fully human and fully displaying the grandeur of God. And so he took on humanity, right? And if that were not enough, Jesus was willing to die for us as the ultimate act of service. Philippians 2, 6-8 says of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of what? A servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus became a man and took on the form of a servant. And his chief act of service was to die on the cross so that you and I could escape the wrath of God that's coming one day. And so if that has never happened in your life, let me encourage you today to see the greatness of this King of Kings who yet became a servant, all so that you could have your sins wiped away and spend the rest of eternity in in the new creation with the Lord. Turn from your sins today and believe in Jesus, and you will find him there, gentle, ready to receive you. Let us pray, church. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. We just stand in awe of the power of your word, how you've revealed these things so long in advance, and how they just unfolded like clockwork. We thank you for Jesus most of all. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are so gentle, so mighty, and truly a servant. Thank you for being willing to go to the cross to die for our sins. And Lord, we pray that you would make us servants who bring glory and honor to you. Help us to serve when it is inconvenient, when it is hard, when it is difficult, Lord. Expand our hearts, we pray and ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.